Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel with us, which means Claire Zauke, our Healthcare Director, is here. Claire, good to see you. Thank you. Good to see you. And also Robert Craig, Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert, good to see you. Good day, everyone, now that we've been reassured by our president. So, oh. yeah, okay, so Robert is immediately jumping in. We're, we're going to talk about uh, coronavirus. We've been now talking about it for three weeks. Certainly saw this very early on as a, a you know, for what it was. And we're going to talk more about the, the pandemic now. It is officially a pandemic, according to the World Health Organization. Again, we record Thursday morning. Um, so we'll talk more coronavirus. We are going to also talk about the Democratic presidential primary. Uh, more states. What well, was Big Tuesday or Super Tuesday 2 this week? Um, talk about that. We're also going to talk about some uh, healthcare survey that Citizen Action did. So we'll be joined by Lynn Quincy, who helped put out the survey with Citizen Action. Uh, we're looking forward to having a good conversation about healthcare and the findings. Also, we have to talk about uh, the voter purge, and uh, there's an update and more information that relates to our state Supreme Court election. Uh, and potentially more topics, but um, folks, we're going to start talking about uh, the coronavirus now pandemic. Um, again, we record Thursday morning, and as of yesterday, and I, Robert started this uh, with the show, President Trump um, had, a, had a press conference to talk about... <laughs> Speech from the uh, a speech, uh, excuse, uh, 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 press conference, a is not written fair. speech off of teleprompters from the Oval Office, right? And to talk about the coronavirus, and I don't believe it really assured anyone. And of course, let everybody know that we'll no longer be allow having flights in uh, from Europe, other than. Um, apparently, apparently, Great Britain is England is no longer, a part and apparently, of it's okay for Europe. Americans, just not Europeans. So, and it and cargo, he said was banned in the speech, but now they've clarified it is not. So, apparently, so, the speech as written by the White House was inaccurate. So, so, I think though the big news really is when you start to see things like the NBA suspend all their games, um, and I think we're going to start to see a lot more today. Um, we're recording in the morning. Governor Evers is going to have a news conference at 1130 this morning, um, and I, w there could be more news. So this is a obviously evolving, quickly evolving crisis. Claire, I want to go to you first. Uh, you've been sort of leading our discussion on this. And, you know, let's just let's immediately start first with just a public health kind of uh, focus in terms of this has changed significantly uh, since we last uh, talked about this. I was gone last week, but um, I know you guys continue to talk about it, particularly the aspect of paid sick days. But now we're in it, and we're having... So last night, the NBA player tested positive, who clearly was in contact with lots of other people. Um, Claire, where do we stand, right, the latest, just in terms of this is, this is about to really get very serious here in Wisconsin? Yeah, I think... Uh it's, it's already very serious, and just because we aren't aware of um, any significant cases in Wisconsin doesn't mean that we should not be behaving yeah. as if this is very serious. Uh, and we've already talked about um, small personal things that we can do. We're like washing our hands a lot and sanitizing our desks and sanitizing doorknobs and whatnot. Um, 
and that, that we should all be doing anyways on a regular basis now. Um, and we've talked about some policy things that are important. Um, I know that the there's been a discussion at the state level um, in recent uh, days around uh, paid sick leave. It's unfortunate that that's not going anywhere. Um, unfortunate is is too weak of a word. It is unconscionable. It's almost immoral, right? <laughs> that, like that. that that is not going anywhere. Uh, um, we should absolutely be doing that. Um, and um, my my biggest sort of personal soapbox at the moment is is that um, we need to all be treating this with the seriousness that it deserves. Um, and uh, I, I hope that folks will take in particular the um, mandate or the call um, to, to social distance particularly seriously. I think that is what's going to be the biggest challenge for all of us moving forward is letting go of that, that big trip we've been planned, letting go of that night out that we were looking forward to for months um, you know, acknowledging that we're not going to be able to see some folks um, who are planning to visit us on trips or whatever because they have to cancel and like supporting them in that decision. Um, I, I think these are all these these are going to be the most challenging things I think for us moving forward as we adjust our behavior. Um, and so I wanted to put that out there in the world as well. Robert, uh, I think Claire very well covered the the personal part of it, and that is important. We understand, unlike the president, though, that the personal gets to the social, right? And that we're all interconnected, as my minister at the Unitarian Church said last weekend. And so how we act affects others. In other words, even if we're not in populations that are vulnerable, if we are not careful and, and become carriers of this, even in some cases, you'll never know it. Uh, if, you're, if you're a healthy person, not in the part of the, part of the population that's most vulnerable, you will then pass it on to relatives, to friends, or to people you don't know. And so it's important to stay healthy. And eight hours of sleep is also a very important thing. People need to sleep, and I don't care all the reasons not to. And put the damn phones away and get your rest and stay healthy. It's not only about your health and whether you're at risk. It's about everyone else's at risk if you pick up this virus and then it's so contagious spreading it. Uh, but we're, we're doing this. I mean, Claire's right to focus on the personal because... I heard a medical expert on national public radio today, not a place with, with yellers, right, and, and uncredible information. What? what are you talking about? Yes, saying that we've had the worst response of any country in the world, including ones like Iran that have, that have uh, handled it horrendously, and that the president getting up there and claiming we have fewer cases is outrageous because we don't know because we're not testing. And the no. South Koreans are doing 10,000 tests a day. We apparently haven't done 10,000 yet. Yeah, I want to dive into this because this is to me the biggest. I mean, when this, when folks look back and that idea that there has not been a immediate rush, especially once we knew, you know, that this was coming here and that this was probably already here, that we didn't rapidly ramp it up tests and the ability of tests uh, for folks, because as as Claire you mentioned, right, this. This is a great deal of personal responsibility in some ways where, like, if you get sick or you're feeling symptomatic, that you have to almost, like, self-quarantine. If you had the ability to just go and get tested and know right away, I mean, that is the biggest problem here. We've got people yeah. walking around who have no idea that they have this, and they have functionally had no capacity to get tested in this country uh, for the last month or two. And, that, and that's I, just a, it's almost immoral. I know Claire's going right? to comment, but there are outbreaks in New Rochelle, New York. There may be other places worse. We don't even know there are outbreaks there, yeah. right? 
Claire. Yeah, and, and I want to add that, and, and so now I'm, I was trying to be like very calm earlier, yeah. so like right, and, and now my <laughs> uncalmness is coming out, right? So I'm mad that this has to get to the point that we're talking about personal responsibility. We yeah. should always have been talking about personal Absolutely. responsibility, right? But like this was a government responsibility, and this is a government failing, and and we need to name that, right? Yep. Like I, okay, shocker, I was into the Daily, blah blah blah. Everybody mm-hmm. knows the Daily did an episode where they were talking about how like how we got to this point and how we had a window of opportunity between when we were away like a month period of time between when we knew this was happening in China and we saw it was going to start spreading into Europe and other Asian countries and we could see it moving toward us and we had like a month of time yeah. where you know China had released the sequencing of this virus and Germany had developed a test and we could have just started producing and instead the US was like no we want to develop our own test and then we need to get the FDA to approve it and then it's just going to sit there for weeks while this spreads without anybody knowing how it got there in Washington state. And we don't know yet the full transparency because uh, Trump was allowed to hire all the records around impeachment. We don't know to what it, at what point Trump started meddling. So it looks like it might have been an underfunded CDC and and an and underfunded and very bureaucratic FDA slowing things down. But at some point, Trump wanted to squelch there was a problem for his own political gain, and we don't know how early that started. It's very clear it started at some point and, and made it worse. It may even be the predicate cause. We just don't know. But if you had leadership, if you had a president who would have stepped in and said, fix this, other set places are, are testing, we need to test, then they, he, that, you need leadership. So things happen in government, but they don't work without leadership, right? So it really becomes down to the top. And regardless whether the CDC made giant mistakes on their own at first, right, Claire? Yeah, right. And and things like, you know, federal regulations, rules and regulations and, poly, you know, these procedures that we have in place, right? Like, we got to remember why they're there, right? So if they're there to protect us, then we need to be willing to, like, to modify them and to move more quickly and be willing to let go of the things we don't need in times of crisis. And, and, and just, you know, sticking so strongly to like these very rigid procedures that are not meant to exist in times of crisis is really harming people. And we, we wasted, we squandered, not we, our government, our elected leaders on the federal level in the Trump administration, squandered the small window of time that we had where we could have had tests out to all of our health centers, all of our hospitals, all of our city's public health departments or whatever, where we could have been primed and ready to go. But instead, they wanted to waste time doing this thing. There, I know. There's We're going to come back. We're going to come back for br- right after this I just say there's only, go- there's only one leader of the whole country who could have cut through. And with that, we're going to take a break here at the Battleground Wisconsin. We're going to talk more about this on the other side. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Robert, I was cutting you off about the president, and I think this broader discussion, right, I, I deliberately kind of tried to 
um, trigger everyone about the personal <laughs> responsibility stuff because that's essentially where we are at, right? Like we're left where everybody sort of has to take it upon themselves to have their own sick time, to figure it all out, go to the store, get your stuff, prepare, uh, and there is no real plan, and do this all in, you know blind without the testing. And we talked about this the first week we talked about this. We talked about the pharmaceutical industry, the way our public health system is set up or not set up to actually respond to stuff like this so it's all playing out Robert right so obviously there are huge mistakes being made uh, and have been made and the only is a place where you need a president this is what presidents do the uh, doctor at the CDC can't order the FDA to change its rules the FDA doesn't have the authority one member of Congress can't give a speech and make something happen right they're one individual member of Congress one governor mm -hmm. there have been heroic leadership by governors of both parties actually on this it's the president, and the president is such a, 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 a an imperfect person that he's still wow. unable. Look, I'm trying not to. I'm, I'm really trying not to stigmatize mental illness because mental, most people with mental health issues would have done this extremely better, right? It's not about that. It's about it's about looking at the leadership, right? And so, but he still couldn't do it. Last night was. Uh, an abomination. Now, for a couple different reasons. First of all, regardless of what mistakes were made by the president or everyone else, now's the time to do everything we can to protect as many people as possible. And instead, we got a xenophobic speech calling it a foreign virus and blaming it on foreigners and claiming we're better than other places and not talking about the one thing we need to do, which is test everyone so we can know where it's a problem and then we can intervene. And we're not, and that that still wasn't even part of the damn thing. And then there were gross errors walked back immediately. He read the speech. So, what is this? Is this that that it literally he and his speechwriters are detached from even the rest of the White House? I mean, that, we'll find out later. But this is unbelievable. And look how we know, you know, you'll know more when you're listening than we do. But there's the stock market's been stopped by automatic circuit breakers twice. Uh, so far this morning, and we're taping early in the morning. Okay, so it didn't reassure anyone. It was he was he forced this thing into his ridiculous frame that everything is an enemy, the other, and the other is foreign. Right, a foreign virus. Viruses don't have nationalities. Dude, he brought Brexit into this by like yeah. blaming the EU and and somehow yeah, Britain just... is pure. It was it was awful. And that's the best they get out of him. You know around him, if they didn't have him a press conference, as you uh, misspoke earlier, because God knows what he'd say. This is the best they could negotiate with him for him to read, and it was had to be clarified immediately, because he said that we were banning all foreign travel to Europe, all, all travel to Europe, Americans and Europeans, and all cargo. And oh, no, no, just Europeans and not cargo. Well, which in the speech he read off the teleprompters. So, Claire... A lot of other states now and areas where certainly um, there's been a lot more cases or at least uh, concern around that have started to do things like ban public gatherings of, say, a thousand. Um, San Francisco is, is going to ban events of 250 people or more. This gets to this social distancing that you talked about, right? Like it's, and this is where. You know, you, we really functionally do need the government to come in and start saying this because otherwise uh, events are going to happen, right? And it's going to be there's there's also a financial incentive for a lot of events to continue because people have tons of money and time invested in them, and it does require again 
the public good. Um, we'll see. Maybe Evers will be doing this at 1130. But just your thoughts on probably where we're headed, what we ought to be doing here. I am glad that there are um, major institutions that are taking the uh, sort of preemptive measures to cancel events um, or make accommodations um, for events that would put more than, you know, 100 people or, or so in a room. Um, um, you know, the NBA postponing their season, um, you know, NCAA having a, a tournaments without crowds, um, universities like UW-Madison and UW-Milwaukee shifting to online courses. Um, I think that's, I think that's all good and I support those measures. Um, I have, uh, two thoughts, which is that, um, you know, hearkening back to our conversation around personal responsibility, I think we should all seriously consider before we go to gatherings where there's more than 20 folks or so, like if we can, if we can avoid it, I think we just need to like be okay with avoiding some spaces on our own. I also think that as a society, we should be thinking about who the canceling of these large events and whatnot affects economically, um, because there are a lot of people, especially in the service industry, who are going to be really, really harmed by things like, um, you know, the NBA season being canceled. I mean, yep. think about all of the the members of MASH, yep. um, the Milwaukee Area Service and Hospitality Workers. We just had Peter Rickman, their executive director, yep. on um, a few weeks ago here talking about their hard-won um, contract at the Pfizer Forum and where the Bucks play. Yep. And so they were probably looking forward to starting these their new season where they were going to be making a living wage and having these great benefits. And um, it was going to be their first season under the contract. And now, you know, who knows when that's if or when that season will start. Right. And so I think we need to be thinking as a society as well about and especially as progressives. And how can we support folks who are going to be left behind economically um, because of all of these, you know, courses and tournaments and whatnot being canceled? Robert. And Claire makes a great point because the president threw out all sorts of things he's going to do to help people. We know his tendency and the tendency of conservatives to help bail out the banks, not the people, right? It's not a metaphor. It really happened, but it's a metaphor. And so I'm a lot more concerned about the stadium workers than bailing out the Milwaukee Bucks and their, and their billionaire owners, regardless of whether they're good folks or not. Airline, same thing, versus all the small businesses, and we know them are a network that are on the brink and may go out of business because of this, right, across the country. The other thing is, because this gets into our bailiwick, is the president made a promise that he had met with the health insurance CEOs and that they were going to provide the testing uh, for free. So we didn't mandate it. We're not doing legislation. Uh, there's already many reports that this is not really a full promise and that there are going to be tons and tons of loopholes. And so this is an industry that you, it doesn't matter. They will find a loophole. You need to mandate it. And you need to mandate. Here's first thing. It doesn't cover where the employer really is taking the risk, not the insurance company. Even if you think you have an insurance card, they're okay. The other thing is the test could be free. But the doctors charge things hospitals have added on to take more money out of our system because all systems rigged for money. Those three, and you need to not just get an oral agreement. I mean, the Office of Insurance Commissioner here in Wisconsin, uh, a directive this week, not a directive, a plea to insurance plea. companies. You have to force them. They are busily flaunting the Affordable Care Act and charging for preventive care up and down the aisle for 
for, for breast cancer screenings, for colonoscopies. That's what they do. It's all they do. And this, therefore, we'll, we'll get into this in coming weeks, reflects on our whole healthcare system and why it needs fundamental reform. This is going to lay bare with how unprepared this system is and how it's built for profit, not for health and people. So I want to follow up on a just real quick on a couple of things. I, I think, um, Claire, what, what you were talking about in terms of the folks that are going to be directly impacted, I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And there's been no discussion of exactly how that's going to happen. You mentioned the paid sick leave not moving at all when it was brought up at the state level, right? That ought to happen federally, too. We ought to guarantee people the right to be able to not be economically devastated by what's about to happen. And, and I mean, we haven't begun to talk about you know, the further fallout, you know, if there is panics, like the ability to access certain things quick down the road, it's just, quick, it's, yes. Quick piece of news before Claire comments, and that is the Democrats in the House did pass a package around this. The, the reports were, as of Thursday morning, that Nancy Pelosi is holding back on moving the package and is in negotiations with the Trump administration. So at least... The uh, Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats are trying to address things like the paid sick days. Let me just say this. There's a comparison between this and the climate crisis in that we have known there's going to eventually be a pandemic for a long time, and both parties have been underinvesting in public health. Wisconsin ranks well into the 40s on public health investments, and it's sort of like a sci-fi movie where a lot of things had to happen. We had to have Trump for it to be this bad, but if we'd be invest, invested in a true universal health care system and actually invested in public health infrastructure, it would have been much harder for him to mess this up. So this is sort of like a whole series of things, but it has to do with our, our society is rigged for profit for the wealthy and not for doing things like we knew there was going to be a Corona-style virus pandemic eventually. A lot of experts did. We did not plan for it. I think you hit the nail on the head, right? And so, so yes, this is a problem of our failure um, as a society to push for a non-private healthcare system. Um, the the for-profit healthcare system is clearly rigged against ev- or for everybody against patients. And it's also why this idea of personal responsibility right now is so important because we like we can not allow it to get to the place where like everybody is sick and everybody needs to go to the hospital for breathing aids because we just don't have the public infrastructure to support that scenario and and that's why I'm harping so much so much on this idea that we need to be like self-isolating um, to a great extent we just don't have the public health infrastructure and with that in America you're on your own and with that we got to take a break here at the battleground Wisconsin We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. We are really fortunate to have a special guest, and we're going to be talking about health care and a really important survey that was done here in Wisconsin. Our guest is Lynn Quincy. She is the director of the Healthcare Value Hub. Lynn, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Well, we really appreciate it. Um, So... You guys were involved uh, jointly here with us at Citizen Action in a survey around healthcare. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what the key to sort of what you might would say the top lines of your findings of the survey were? 
I would be happy to do so. This is a really important survey because uh, we rarely have data that is specific to the state of Wisconsin as to how people are interacting and feeling about the healthcare system. And what this survey reveals is that Wisconsin adults are experiencing uh, a lot of hardship due to high healthcare costs. 53% of our adult respondents, so that includes uh, both senior and non-senior adults, experience one or more healthcare affordability burdens in the prior 12 months. So that's more than half of adults in the state experienced a healthcare affordability burden. Um, also, even higher numbers are very worried about affording health care in the future. So maybe you don't have a burden that just happened to you, but you're very worried it is going to happen to you in the future. Almost 80% of adults reported being worried or very worried. And here's a final key finding that I'll share right now. This worry is across party lines, and when we asked about um, what are the top things that residents should want their uh, policymakers to work on, health care was the number one priority for policymakers, far exceeding other things like taxes or the economy. And on a bipartisan basis, with a surprisingly little uh, variation, the respondents endorsed a lot of very specific government actions, um, things like making it easier to switch insurers if the health plan drops your doctor, a whole host of interventions designed to address high drug costs, um, and some other actions. And I think the fact that it is um, really does not vary across party line provides a strong basis for action in the state. Yeah. Hey, Lynn, this is Claire. Um, and I, I wanted to add that I am just so glad that we were able to run this survey in Wisconsin. And and I, um, I'm also grateful that that you led such a robust survey. Right. So you administered the survey to over a thousand folks here in Wisconsin. And with with relatively equal samples, about a third of the survey were folks who self-identify as Democrats, Republicans and independent or neither. Right. And so when we say things like there is across the board support for these policy interventions and um, and that like across the board, people view this as their top issue. It's not as if we're talking about some small sample that would not be representative of the broader population. Right. Like like these are these are serious and well-founded uh, uh, numbers and findings. It's it's really very exciting. Well, I, of course, would agree, and I think I'll further reinforce your point by saying we see a similar bipartisan um, support for governmental action to address the problems in our healthcare system in other surveys as well. So I do think we can have uh, confidence in these results. So, Lynn, uh, this also, the survey actually found that this is affecting people doing the things they need to do to stay healthy, that people are uh, skipping their medications. And, you know, we know how dangerous that is. Say if you're a diabetic, for example, and you don't and you skip your insulin, people are not going to the doctor or medical care when they are actually feeling sick, in part because they literally could not afford a surprise medical bill or can't afford the incredibly high co-pays and cost-sharing around uh, dealing with the medical system and dealing with pharmaceutical companies. And you found that in the, in the survey, Lynn? Yes, I did. It's, this should be very worrying. Um, 
part of the the instrument is pretty valuable because it really probes pretty deeply into the types of cost sharing barriers that residents are um, finding. And you'll see that dental care, skipping dental care, was the most common thing reported um, as a result of cost concerns. Almost a third of adults in the state reported that particular problem. And then it continues, just as you said, they're delaying going to the doctor or having a procedure done. They're skipping a recommended medical test or treatment. They're avoiding. Sometimes it's not a delay, but they just don't go at all. They don't fill their prescriptions, or they try things like cutting pills in half, skipping doses of medicine. And we've seen the newspaper stories with these um, you know, this very scary information. But now we have kind of some numbers to put to those stories and in together between the consumer stories and the survey. Again, it should provide a really strong basis for some action on the part of policymakers. And Lynn, uh, I know you've been a careful observer of this. I don't want you to talk beyond what you might know or think is likely, but I know I've known you for years back to your days at Consumer Reports. But uh, I'm concerned, I want to see if you are, that folks will not get tested for COVID-19, the coronavirus, because they're afraid of cost sharing. And in fact, you need you need all of the costs to be covered. The test could be covered, uh, but you would end up with facility fees, doctor fees, emergency room, whatever it is. There's all sorts of things people are now aware of that get added on. I know my plan a couple of years ago had a free vision test turned out uh, per year, one, turned out didn't include the doctor reading the test and giving me the results, so I got a $150 bill. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, so I, of course, agree, and thank you for mentioning Consumer Reports. Um, I, there was a really scary story out of Florida where someone did the right thing. They went to the emergency room. They think they thought they might have the virus, and they ended up being quarantined in the hospital, and they got an enormous bill that they couldn't pay. Now, we don't want to discourage people from taking the steps they need. I think this is more a message to policymakers that, first of all, they need to provide clear information that's very easy to understand. We they, There can't be these nuances like, well, if you're in a fully insured product, then the test is covered. But if you're in a self-insured large employer plan, maybe it's not covered. And and the exact question you raised, what happens? What about the other costs associated with getting tested? What about, you know, presenting at the emergency room, which we want people to do if they um, show these symptoms? So, I sorry, I, long-winded, I'm just agreeing with you I, I wholeheartedly. Well, I know you, you with your, all your experience, that I, oh, I tell listeners that matters a lot. Lynn does not, you know, make statements off the cuff about health policy. Yeah, and your comments are 100% in line with everything that we've, we've been saying, right? Um, that, that we need some serious, uh, some serious reforms in the way that our healthcare industry functions right now to ensure that people actually get quality and value care um, for the money that we're spending, which is not the case in the United States right now. Uh, compared to other countries of our um, size and, and similar economies, right, we, we pay more in healthcare 
healthcare out of pocket and we seek less care and we get more care that we don't need. We get care that is unnecessary, um, but we don't go to the doctor when it is necessary. Um, and when we're talking about, I know you live and breathe healthcare value, Lynn, so I'm not telling you anything you don't know, um, <laughs> but we're, I, these might be things that our listeners don't know. Um, and that's why I'm so glad that that uh, you and the Healthcare Value Hub's leadership is is so strong on on helping people talk about the value of, of the healthcare that we should be receiving, but we're not. I think that a silver lining, a possible silver lining here would be that we really take much more of a public health lens to the types of policy decisions we've been making in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. People um, should be very worried about their neighbors who don't have health coverage or who might be avoiding getting tested, getting health care they need uh, due to the high cost of health care. So I, I hope that it will really cause a reset for what creating a strong social safety net so that everybody is protected, everybody has a chance to thrive. Um, and honestly, we've done some focus group work that is outside of the survey we're talking about today, and that is what most people want. Even if they have good health coverage now, they're very concerned and have anxiety about the disparities in our health system and the fact that, you know, uh, the next year they could be the person who doesn't have good health care, and now they feel very vulnerable. Um, we also, I have to say, we need to be able to have confidence in our public health institutions. That's another call to action that is coming out of this coronavirus scare. And I think locally, a lot of people do have that confidence, but not everywhere. And this is a real wake-up call to those institutions that they have to, um, every day, even when there's not a crisis, be inspiring confidence and trust in the public that they are intended to protect. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I, I appreciate you, you making that point. Um, and, uh, so to, to bring this segment to a close, I think what I'll, what I'll say is that, um, this survey highlights that people are concerned about a few things that, uh, citizen action is working on. So, um, you know, 71% of folks are concerned about affording the cost of nursing homes and home care services. Um, that's why citizen action is working on a, a campaign to support caregivers, um, so that we can get more people in that profession and provide that service. 41% of folks are concerned about, or think that we should be taking action on protecting pre-existing conditions. That's something that Citizen Action is working on. 53% of folks are concerned about the cost of prescription drugs in Wisconsin. That's another one of our campaigns. So I just want to thank you again for providing this survey to us because it's really going to help us a lot in our work. And uh, we're going to make sure folks pay attention. My pleasure. Well, thanks so much, Lynn. Again, Lynn Quincy, the Director of Healthcare Values Hub. We appreciate it so much for joining us today here at the Battleground, Wisconsin. Thank you. Great. Thank you much. And with that, we got to take a break. We'll be right back. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. We're going to talk a little bit about the Democratic presidential primary um, this this would normally probably be the first thing we might talk about, but it is in our last segment, given uh, all the important news. But um, the uh, primary, we had we had Big Tuesday this week, so a number of states, and in particular the the big state that everyone's talking about was Michigan, um, and I think all our listeners know uh, it was it was a good week for Biden, um, and Sanders' campaign continues. Uh, to underperform, particularly um, with new voters, young voters, and uh, in his own uh, press conference, 
the inability to win the debate over who can beat Trump. Um, and I think Sanders is really sort of uh, talking about that. So I want to talk a little bit about that, but talk about it also within this this broader context, right? We have the coronavirus going on, which means a lot of the campaigning has is, is really going to slow down. Um, the debate is going to be non, is not uh, as of now, and this could all change, right? Uh, the debate won't have any audience, um, but it has one hell of an issue now around public health and around something that has been a major issue, let's just say, of Senator Sanders, Medicare for All, and the idea that we have this completely messed up private system that's incapable, possibly, of responding to one of the biggest medical health crises of our lifetime. So it is potentially uh, something that may allow uh, the dynamic to change. But let's just say the, shall we say, the horse race, the getting of delegates, all of that, those fundamentals look good for Biden. But I want to talk about that and see if uh, get people's responses. Robert, your thoughts. So everyone's still processing the sudden change in this in this race. This is like an NCAA college basketball game where the underdog looked like they might put the game away and then the favorite went and shockingly made up a 20-point lead in, in, in two minutes kind of thing, right? And so this is the kind of thing that people will be writing about historically for a long time to try to explain. So this is not real history we're doing. This is like, you know, real time and we're going to be wrong about a lot of things. Uh, but I think that I was always worried, I wasn't right about timing or scenario, I've known who predicted the scenario, that if Bernie got too big a lead, the moderate wing would consolidate so quickly that he wouldn't be able to get above 50% in these races. And uh, it happened so quickly, he couldn't adapt. And he's mostly a field operation, and so you you can't change your targets in a field operation. You've been doing field forever. So that's one thing that happened. I think another thing that's happened is, is that once Biden finally made the case, or someone did for him, I'm not sure he did anything, right, that he was the, the one to beat Trump, that's become the overriding thing for most voters. So that's a second level of thing. And that happened so quickly, there was no way for the Sanders campaign, which is very well done and well funded and, and strategic, to adapt in that amount of time. And then... The third thing, of course, is is that the the problem with the Hillary campaign for Bernie that he does not break through uh, with especially rural African American voters in the South, but also a problem even overall became a huge factor with the group of states involved. But he did make huge breakthroughs with Latinx voters, which is different than 16, and is going to be worth discussion and analysis. And then I really think this one might be huge that when people are fearful right now, not only because Trump is president, but because of the coronavirus, and when people are fearful, there's really good opinion research on this, we've, we've known about it for years and message around it, they retrench and want to protect what they have. They don't want to take risks to get new things. And so I think Bernie's whole pitch about all the things we need to do, the America we create, is far less effective when people are feeling the emotion of fear. They need something like righteous indignation where people want to take action and change things. And we've known for over a decade that in healthcare messaging, too much fear is often fomented, and that causes people not want to change the system because they're afraid of, because uh, they want to retrench. And so I think that was, we don't know how much of, but I think that was a big factor in, 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 in aiding this shift. Claire? Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, I don't have uh, too much more to add. I think Robert's, um, as usual, political analysis is pretty astute. Um, 
I, um, I did do some perusing of the New York Times exit polls from this latest round of, um, of elections um, that in Michigan and was it Mississippi and all of these this most recent Missouri, days, Missouri, Washington, yep. um, one of the Dakotas, North, think, Dakota, North Dakota, which Bernie won. Um, yeah, and so um, there was, I mean, there was some interesting um, things in there, um, and I thought that um, there were there was more consolidation of women behind um, Joe Biden than Bernie Sanders than I um, expected. Um, I, I don't know if that is candidate related, like if people just, if women just react poorly to Senator Sanders or, or if it's around this, um, if it's around policies or, or if it's out of, you know, fear of the, of the current situation. Um, but I thought that was relatively interesting. Um, um, there were, yeah, so I think people are going to be studying these, these exit polls and trying to understand them for a long time to come. So I want to bring up, I would like to bring up one thing that I think is also happening and it's been talked about before. I mean, straight up misogyny. Um, and Sanders got voters last time who basically didn't like Hillary because she was a woman and she was Hillary Clinton. And I think they're okay with Joe Biden. And, I, and you see this in a number of rural areas that Sanders did very well in last time and he just did not, is not doing well. And I just, I think there was, I think we're seeing this. We saw this with Warren, right? That there, you know, there is a, there's a real thing out there and Sand, uh, uh, that Sanders benefited from in 2016. And there was just an anti-Hillary vote, an anti-women vote, I think, uh, that Joe Biden just doesn't present. And so he does, he, and this gets back to who can beat Trump. People believe he can beat Trump, right? Because a lot of them, <laughs> some of them are actually voters who would have not would not vote for Hillary, but will vote for Biden. So they, it is actually true in their mind that they believe Biden can beat Trump. Uh, it's their own sexism. That's great. Some, and some of it's implicit. That's a great point. What Claire said and what especially said about women's a great point. Uh, and which I'm going to interrupt you one last time. Which, by the way, gets back to your point that you were worried at the beginning that he couldn't get to 50%. We have to grapple with the fact that the progressive movement still is ideological left is still a, not a majority base within the Democratic Party. And uh, this is Lane Bear and Sanders couldn't overcome that he didn't have this, this anti-women Hillary vote. Always hard to suss out how much of Bernie's support in 16 was anti-Hillary vote and how much of that was misogyny, right, and yep. sexism. How much of that was elements of Hillary that in her career or bashing and completely defaming of Hillary by the right-wing yeah, infrastructure sure. and the mainstream media. It's all mixed together and hard to ferret out. And that made the left over-interpret 2016 and therefore overplay our hand to some degree. I think that's true. But I think he's been had an historical campaign, both of them, built a much more unified yes. left with a clearer policy agenda than we've had in half a century our at lifetimes. least. Our lifetimes. And it can be built on, and it's not over yet. Uh, Biden wants, uh, needs the whole Bernie side, and Bernie maybe more effectively because Biden may be more, and, and the establishment Dem Democrats may understand it better, needs to start to make policy moves, not just rhetorical gestures. And we, over the coming weeks, have a, a number of series of 
um, ways to do that. I was on the platform committee for Bernie, and the Hillary folks wouldn't move on things that would have made her more electable. And I hope that the, that the Biden team realizes that was a mistake and will actually move on big policies. I also think it's more than just more than just that, right? I I, I think this is a matter of not if but when um, the party shifts in a more progressive direction. Um, and, and that's just by nature of, of people aging and the demographics of the voting uh, population changing, right? So another piece of the exit polling um, that, that I found interesting was that 38% um, of voters were under the age of 45, so they were 18 to 44 years old. And of those, 64% of them voted for Bernie Sanders. But unfortunately right now, you know, we're just a third of the voting population. So 62% of voters were 45 years old or older, and those folks voted 66% for Joe Biden. Yeah. I mean, that is a like very, yeah. very stark generational divide. Yep. And so I think as, as people who are right now under the age of 45 um, become the majority of voters, um, we, we will see, I think, continue to see candidates who are more and more progressive, getting more and more um, support, getting further in the election, winning more delegates, and hopefully eventually um, becoming president. We'll continue to track and talk about the presidential primary. Robert, we have about 45 seconds. Can you please update our listeners about the voter purge in the state Supreme Court? Uh, and you may know more than we do by the uh, when you hear this, but the, uh, that the right-wing think tank is again moved for the Supreme Court to intervene and to purge the roles, and scandalously, the, uh, the, the Walker-appointed Justice Kelly, who had recused himself, has said he's going to probably unrecuse himself because the decision would be announced till after the election. So you're, all I got to say is recusal is about the appearance of a conflict. And the fact that he probably that no one's going to believe except hardcore conservatives that he isn't doing this because they want to purge the rolls to affect uh, the t the 2020 election, and it, because p many people will believe that, including anyone fair-minded, he should recuse himself. So this is again a trashing of the judiciary to get their way and hold power, and it's an outrage, and we'll have more in coming weeks. We definitely are going to talk more about this and the state supreme court race, critical race coming up April 7th. With that, we got a call and then to this battleground Wisconsin. Folks, take care of yourself. Uh, follow a lot of the protections. Uh, take this very seriously. Uh, this virus is very, very serious. Uh, we'll see you next week here at the battleground Wisconsin.